For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Marvelous. Marvelous helps you build and grow your own courses, memberships, and live streamed programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. If you're looking for a simple, beautiful, custom branded platform to build and grow your online business, you can learn more at heymarvelous.com. Welcome to the Angie Spoke Podcast. Get ready for this one. This is our first of many planned conversations around Web3 and crypto. We both think it's extremely important that women understand the new era of the internet or Web3. It's projected to be a $10 trillion market in the next five years, and 81% of the current participants are male. These conversations are meant to change that. So we were thrilled when Sofia Garcia agreed to join us to talk about her business centered around crypto and NFTs. She is the founder of Art X Code, a generative art house. Previously, she worked at Onyx by JP Morgan as a blockchain technical design strategist. And over the last six years, Sophia has become a noteworthy leader in the generative art space as a curator, advisor, and art dealer. She's also the director of education of Code Art, a nonprofit focused on teaching young girls how to make art with code. This is a spectacular business. We loved her. We loved her ideas and her business. Enjoy it. Well, welcome, Sophia, to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. Sophia, what's so funny to me is like when we have a guest on, I will go and like research them and like learn and, you know, have some really super smart questions to ask. And the problem with you and your business is that there's so many rabbit holes. I kept forgetting about you. It's not terrible to say. So I would go on your Instagram and be like, okay, I'm going to figure her out. I want to understand her. And then I would find an artist and I would click through and I would like scroll through their thing. And then I forgot what I was doing. And it happened over and over and over again. It's a fascinating space. It is. It is. So I I get it. <laughs> so let's give you the honors. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you, about your company. And then I know we each have literally a hundred questions for you. So amazing. So I'm Sophia Garcia and I'm the art dealer, curator, and founder of Artix Code, which is essentially a generative art house really set on promoting embracing the generative art algorithmic art community is kind of the way I like to say it. And yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to enhance the space in any way that I can, helping out artists, uh, talking with 
collectors, institutions, and really just spreading the good word of art made with code. Okay. Do you want to just start with de- definitions, Jenny? Do you want to just Yes. Yes. Okay. So Sophia, <laughs> could you define for us in our audience, what is generative art? Yes. And that is actually such a loaded question because that is an answer that is still being defined. There are a lot of papers, articles on this subject. And I think at the basis of it, we talk about this idea of a systemic way of creating art. So Mm system-based creation in this case, and what I'm fascinated in is when an artist uses computer programming, Mm -hmm. they write their own functions to create their visual output. So when we first started doing this, I think, well, you know, in this contemporary category, you know, we were all meeting online and we were just calling it creative coding. We were all coders, very into this idea of creating visuals with them, with our programs. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, well, it's generative art, it's generative art. And we're like, okay, um, great. Mm-hmm. And, and it actually has a really long, rich history. Artists from the sixties, when they first started using computers, also referring to their work as generative art. And so we see mm-hmm. these terms, computer art, generative art being used interchangeably. And there are a lot of different subsets within there. And so we have artists who maybe write a JavaScript program to create works in the browser. We also have artists who are training AIs and writing their own code on that front and producing work in tandem with a neural network that they themselves train. You know, they kind of... And if you want to go outside of the computer, then there's this idea of generative art. You can look at Islamic tiling, where this idea mm-hmm. of automation, there's a system in place, and you're going to follow that system until you have the final artwork. So there's, you know, there's a different ways to look at it. But in this case, we're really looking at digital or computer-based generative art. Again, I kind of really like to refer to it as algorithmic art. We have a, in the 60s, there was actually a group of artists who referred to themselves as the algorists, this idea of the algorithm as art and that they needed to write their own functions to do that. Oh my so, God. Okay. That's yeah. so cool. And then so that's interesting. So that's been going on for a long time. Yes, and then yes. this whole like NFT layer to it. So when wow. like, tell us your story about NFTs and learning about them and how you've introduced them into your business. Yes. Okay. So for that, we'll take a little step back and how I even found myself in that in Yeah, how I found myself there. So I had been studying art history, working at a contemporary Chinese art gallery here in Miami, and realized that if I wanted to live the life that I wanted to, I was going to need to find a better paying job. So I decided that I was going to take up some computer science classes. And my first computer science class just changed the way I looked at everything. I think beforehand, I would, you know, see installations or be on the computer and just not really understand or connect with it in any way and just assume it existed. <laughs> and after that, it just opened my eyes and, and turned technology into a very human focused area. And so now I would see some really cool installation or something like, oh my God, who did that? You know, it was no longer, oh, technology did that, or this machine did that. It was who programmed that computer, who, who programmed that website, whatever it may be. And so I just became obsessed with the history of computer generated art. And that led me down this huge rabbit hole, which then in turn, I started an Instagram account and I was like, what do I want to talk? What am I looking at? I'm like, mm, art X code. Great. And so it's art X code was my Instagram account where I really just was finding art 
artists, I wanted to see who else was interested in this, who else was looking into creative coding and it really unlocked so much. So at that point, so this is around 2016 or so, I also started to help start a nonprofit in Miami called Code Art. And so we teach young girls how to make art with code. And during that time, I, I started working at JP Morgan in New York and I was working there as an engineer. And during that time, I was finally making enough money that I started to collect the work from these artists that I was finding online. I thought they were amazing. I went to a really cool event in New York and they it was an art and blockchain event in 2018. They said that they were going to do an art fair, the Contemporary and Digital Art Fair. And it was $75 for a booth. And I was like, well, I have $75 and I have these really cool artworks and artists that I want to show. I want people to see them. And so at this point, I was learning about NFTs and blockchain that you know, I had been doing hackathons in the past, really interested, but this changed everything. I was like, okay, like we can kind of get the artwork out there. People are talking about blockchain. Cool. Let's see what's up. So at this point, I curate a selection of works. I print out the code for every single artwork. So you can see the code that created the visual mm-hmm. visual output and that was framed and, and looked like a, you know, just really nice and one of the, the main marketplaces that exists today, OpenSea, was sponsoring this event. And we had one work that we hadn't sold yet. And we were like, what should we do? Who are we going to reach out to to find this artwork? And all of a sudden, we found a collector who was like, I want it on OpenSea. I want an NFT. And I only want the digital asset. And I was like, what? What is going on? I, I was like, I don't know. I like looked I, I looked at OpenSea. I was like, there's just a bunch of collectibles on here. We're seeing monsters. This is a fine art piece. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, like, exactly. I was like, I, I don't I don't see it. But the most interesting part to me also is that this collector didn't want the print. I was like, I'm sorry. This is this is a GK print, like archival print in framed in museum glass, like you're taking the print. And so we ended up making the sale that we handled it, made the first NFT for this artist. This was now May of 2019. And I went to the collector to drop off the piece. And I was like, talk to me, like, why on earth would you want just a digital asset? I don't get that at all. And that was the first time I was introduced to a pure digital gallery, a virtual gallery space. And at the same time, I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, this is like, this this guy owns a crypto hedge fund. He's kind of nerdy, more on the fringes type of thing. And I was like, this is fascinating, but like, it's nice. (laughs) And so, you know, I I didn't think too much of it, but in 2019, we still, I still decided to experiment with it a little bit more, but I was really using NFTs as certificates of authenticity for physical artworks. Mm -hmm. So if, if a collector wanted a work from, let's say, one of the artists that I work with, Dimitri Cherniak, I would say, okay, great, buy this NFT. I will come and deliver the artwork with a printed certificate of authenticity, all the other paperwork that you would need. Great. It really wasn't until 2020 that my whole idea and concept of this changed. So obviously, enter COVID, there was a fair that was going to happen in Paris and obviously got canceled. I had all of these works from this amazing artist, Harshit Agarwal, based in India who was using AI and training it based on, you know, images from Indian culture, Hindu culture, and we couldn't do it. So they did an online fair. And I don't know what it was about the user experience, but it was just a bust. We didn't sell anything. And for me, that was a first. I had already done two exhibitions beforehand, sold everything. I was like, okay, no, we need to figure something out. And so Super Rare was another platform that was around. And I spoke to the artist and I was like, well, why don't we try putting your work up on Super Rare? Like, let's see what that is. And so it's a curated marketplace. You have to be accepted as an artist. Luckily, I had become friends with some of the guys who who work there and they knew 
about what I was doing. They knew what I was doing. So I said, Hey, I have this artist. Is it okay if we put him on there? And they're like, great, go for it. Every single work that was listed in that same fair with the print associated with it. Okay. Every single print, every single NFT that we created sold for more than the prints. And the collectors didn't even care about having a physical asset, you know, like they could care less because there's no way of communicating with the collectors anyway. You just create the artwork. So this idea of minting the artwork, the user experience on that is very similar to really just uploading an image onto Facebook. You upload it, you put in all the associated information that you want with it, the title, the caption, the metadata, you know, about the work. And then you just mint it, you know, you you click, you know, mint and that then gets registered onto the blockchain. Hopefully I still have everyone with me, but you know, it's basically this idea of an artist being able to put their work out there that exists digitally. It exists digitally in the first place, put it out there and have collectors come in and pay for it blew my mind. I was like, I didn't have to pay for logistics. I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have to pay for production kind of beautiful. or anything. And it was amazing. I mean, I dropped my commission by 10%. I was like, for what? I didn't have to do a lot of these heavy lifting. I basically curated the work. I brought it out into the open. I did a marketing push and there we had it. You know, it was, it was amazing. And so what's also really cool is that you can kind of keep it open-ended. You don't have to put a price. And so it really does allow the market to show you what they're willing to pay for an artist's mm-hmm. work. And that was the coolest part that I didn't charge someone more than what the print was. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we had a print that was, you know, maybe $400 and someone ended up buying the NFT of that image for $800. And I would have never known that someone was willing to pay $800 for it in like the traditional way of selling these artworks, unless you're maybe at an auction, but it was just really fascinating. And so I started to experiment with that a lot more in 2020 and doing NFT only or just, I guess, like digital native curations and sales. And at the same time, I was still working at JP Morgan, <laughs> you know, it was something wow. I was doing. It was something that I was doing on the side really for fun. It wasn't until really last year that I took it full time. And 2021 was a huge year for generative art specifically. I saw artists that I used to sell their work for a couple hundred bucks selling in the millions. And, wow. and it was, and it happened so fast. And I think now we're still, you know, it's amazing to see, but also like it was, it's been mind boggling. Uh, you know, <laughs> I thought that this was going to be like kind of a decade long of me being like that freak out the window, like generative art, like it's so cool. <laughs> and I like, finally now, I didn't know that, that there were many people who, who cared. A fun story for this was one of the first projects on Artblocks, which is a really popular marketplace for generative art, was one of my artists. He put up his project and he was like, there's going to be a thousand of them. I was like, a thousand of them? Like, yeah, he's like, are you gonna buy one? And I was like, I'll buy one after lunch, sure. Like, I'll, I'll like, I'll, 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 when I come back, there's a thousand of them. They sold out in 15 minutes. I was like, who are all these people? Who are who are all these people wow. spending all like you know like coming in and buying your work in under 15 minutes? And like, just like the global network and community that's been created in this space is unmatched. It's really really crazy, and everyone's just so kind and anonymous at the same time so you no one really cares just like no in a bit like everyone's mm-hmm. just talking mm-hmm. and having a good time and and enjoying the art and so uh, yeah it's been a really kind of crazy ride the last few, mm-hmm. few years so many questions I love it I so much like I, first of all I think this is the one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard and you know it's hard when you're used to just sort of reading the news and trying to understand what's been going on with the nft space just as an outsider to hear your story I think it really humanizes it and it's in it adds all this context. So thank you for sharing that. I have a couple of questions that I'm sure our audience also has. So the first one, just going back to NFTs, 
mm-hmm. in general. Like we have a very yeah. sort of non-technical audience usually. Mm-hmm. So if someone buys an NFT off of mm-hmm. one of these platforms, so mm-hmm. from your gallery or you know f- from somewhere else, is someone else allowed to sell physical prints of that NFT? Like, are there any restrictions on that? It comes down to smart business, I would say. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working with an artist and they created an NFT and then they wanted to do prints of that, unless it was like an open edition, unsigned. So I guess the, the, a good comparison for this is, you know, Mona Lisa is one of the most widely reproduced images mm-hmm. in the world. My parents have Starry Night at their house, you know, but if they yeah. tried to sell that Starry Night, they would get laughed at. And I think it's kind of the same thing where this NFT now is really just this record. It's your certificate. It's your deed of ownership. If you look at, so the NFT is, and it's really such a bad name, non-fungible token. It really is. It really just it's a unique item. But if you look at the standard on one of the blockchains, it's, it's referred to as the ERC 721 standard. That is what an NFT is, this unique asset, but it really is just a digital deed of ownership is kind of the explain like I'm five definition, but yeah. So if someone wanted to sell a print of it, uh, I mean, I think it really is just like the context of, of that. So if someone wanted to do an open edition of a print unsigned, that's one thing because who's going to buy an unsigned work for a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's what you'll get max, like a hundred bucks, maybe 10 bucks. But when you have an NFT and like a print signed by the artist, that warrants much higher price points. And that's really what you want as a supporter of the artist for the artists themselves. They want to see the value of it being maintained in an official capacity. And that's what NFTs have done for generative art and most mm-hmm. digital art. Helpful. Yeah. Super helpful. I just have one other question on your story, and then I'm going to let Sandy ask all of her questions. So okay. just going back to your definition of generative art. Mm-hmm. So would you consider someone who's programming a video game to be making generative art or, and if not, why not? Okay. So amazing question. Um, and this is actually something I was talking to with a curator at Albright Knox Museum in Buffalo, Dr. Tina Rivers Ryan. She's amazing, incredible woman. And so we were talking about this, you know, what generative art is and that's that discussion. And so yes, a video game definitely has generative properties. You can think of all the Mm -hmm. the backgrounds being generated. So many of those elements are generative. Others are not. So if you 3D modeled, if someone went ahead and did like their own custom 3D model of an asset and then programmed it, that's one thing. If it has like a predefined set of rules that it must follow every single time, it's not necessarily generative. Mm -hmm. If there is a this instance of chance and randomization, that is like a huge component of of generative where Mm -hmm. you really don't know what's going to happen. You have a set of parameters that you've set as the artist or, you know, as the engineer in this case. And, you know, if you have a kind of this, these set of parameters that you don't know what's going to happen, generative is kind of like the the key term there. Okay. So Super I guess like a better, yeah, yeah. Well, keep going. I can go off on <laughs> so many times. I'll keep it. I'll keep it. So I think, Sophia, what I appreciate about your story is that you explained it in a way that, you know, like having this like digital file, if you will, mm-hmm. and like appreciating the physical print, mm-hmm. like that's the point. And so I mm-hmm. think that's where people get really stuck with NFTs. So can you just tell me, If I was an artist and I created something, as you've described, if I had my own generative art in some code, what do you have to do to that to make it an NFT and sellable on OpenSea or on your platform or wherever? Okay. Yeah. So also great question, because it depends. It depends on what platform you're using. It depends on 
you know, what your goals are in a way. So there are different types of, I want to make a lot of money as an artist. That's my goal. (laughs) So there are different types of generative art. And so when I talked about the last, you know, one of my first exhibitions and I I would work with the artist and I would go to their computer and we would kind of tinker around and pick one output from the program to produce as a print. That's kind of considered short form generative art where you're essentially curating the output, you know, what the final artwork is going to be. This is it. So long form generative art, which is probably one of the most popular forms of generative art in the NFT community and really, really special in how it works. And we'll get to that now is Artblock. So Artblock is kind of like the de facto space for generative artists who really work with algorithms. There's another one on Tezos called FX Hash. Tezos is another blockchain because there's a lot of those too. <laughs> but Ethereum and Tezos are kind of the two main blockchains where artists go to present their work. And so there are different NFTs out there. So you can upload an image. And so that could be a, a, a ping, it could be a JPEG. And so an artist can create all of these works, take screenshots or save files and put that and mint that onto the chain, create a record of that. And it's stored as a link. So it's stored in a decentralized server. And so when <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'm not being too uh, jargony oh, right now. It's so, good. It's good. Um, Okay, good. So you have this idea of of tokenizing an image. And so this link that's stored on a decentralized server, you get a link. So if I went on, again, like Facebook, and I right click inspected, and you saw the image, you're actually being fed a link that's being stored mm-hmm. on a server somewhere. Right. Okay, so what's so cool about on chain generative art is this idea of the code being encapsulated within the token itself. So okay. it is self-serve it's kind of like it, imagine it holds a little bit more weight so like let's say for some reason something happened to this link it gets corrupted you can no longer see the image that you mm-hmm. acquired so in that like traditional sense of just the image as the as the token the artist can send you files for you to save on your hard drive to save locally to have printed so you as the collector can archive it with generative art it's a little bit different so you're uploading the algorithm the code is being saved within the token itself, which means even if something happened to that token, if something happened to a link that's showing you, you can still run it in the browser. Mm-hmm. And so the coolest thing about generative art right now and that way of producing it and releasing it into the into the blockchain is that you know you actually get to acquire the code running in real time. And that as a generative art collector is really cool. So now I'm no longer collecting an emulation of it or, you know, a a snapshot of it. Mm -hmm. I'm recording the actual, like the performative act of it running in the browser is what's encapsulated within this record. And Mm -hmm. that is fascinating. But there aren't a lot of places where you can actually do that and admit Mm -hmm. that there there's art blocks, which is also like I'm on the curation board. I'm on the selection committee. It's, it's not so easy to get into and release your, your work into there's FX hash on Tezos, which I think people go in more to experiment. And I believe they also have a curation board. I'm not too sure, but so that sort of way of creating is a very key point in the NFT space, this idea of on-chain generative art, but you can still release generative art projects in the traditional way of producing an NFT. Yeah, okay. so that was okay. my long way of- I Yeah, no, that's like good. Thank you. I did not understand all that. So thank you. So your business that you now work full-time in, so you are basically like 
OpenSea to me is the one that's most known as far as a marketplace. So I can go to your website and buy, I can attach my or connect my crypto wallet and buy from you. Is that right? Funny enough, not yet. Um, oh, so, I thought I saw also, Connect Your Wallet. You know what? I was so many places that who knows yeah, what, where I was. One of, your, one of your rabbit holes. No, but it's uh, so here's the thing. I'm currently working on that. Absolutely, okay. yes. But I have been moving so fast, just trying to figure it out. I was working a full-time job. And so what I was doing was putting artists onto other marketplaces like Superware who have already gone ahead and built the infrastructure. You know, like right. this infrastructure is new. I do not have the income to hire all of these like developers and, and, you know, to do all of these things to get it done in a timely manner. Cause I'm also a perfectionist. So I was like, Ooh. but you know, I, I'm, I'm using OpenSea. I'm using super rare. I was using foundation to do a small curated drops. I do a lot of brokering on secondary. I do a lot of private sales. So the artists can mint essentially wherever they want. There's some artists that actually own their own smart contracts. There's uh, platforms like, manifold that allow artists to create their own smart contracts, which they can then produce their own work from, and they don't have to use a marketplace. And so then I can take that, send that over to a collector, they pay it, I take my commission. And so there are different ways of going about it. But um, yeah, so right now I actually work rather old school for being a rather successful Web3 company. I do a lot of things over email, a lot of things over text message. You know, I send PDFs to a lot of my collectors to let them know what collections are coming. So it's yeah. it's interesting. But yeah, I'm currently in route. It's of, super of rare. Building. I was I clicked over to super yeah. rare. I didn't realize that yeah. was off your website. It says uh, connect your wallet. So that makes sense. So is that, so what's the vision? Like what long-term is the vision for you? Oh, oh my God. Okay. Okay. So really just having a luxury corner of. I love that word. I'm in. Yeah, I think, yeah. Me too. Send, me send me the PDF. No, yeah. 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 <laughs> luxury corner of this space because I think we get really blindsided by the apes and all the ugly, broy things that exist in the space. But there are really talented, beautiful artists and artworks that are being produced that need a place to live and be displayed tastefully that is really like everything i try to do is with that in mind so even i did a show uh, an exhibition called the digital in miami during our basel last year in 2021 <laughs> and you know we went above and beyond to make sure that that presentation looked like a museum presentation. Like mm-hmm. I even I even brought like my own fragrances to make sure that like it felt like a new space when you walked into it. And that is really what it's all about to really show people what this is and to talk about and explain the process behind it so people can connect with it a little bit more. Because if you've never worked with code before, you're like, okay, like, so like, I, I don't know, I, I don't get it. And like, I know, because I remember not knowing how to code. And so it, it's one of those things that is important for me to kind of just make sure that I am not only giving collectors the right place to buy work, but also protecting the artists and making sure that their work is being placed in collections that are here to stay, you know, that people who are actually trying to steward their collections and maintain them for years to come and not just another crypto flipper, which I've seen happen Mm -hmm. and affect the artists that I've worked with because they kind of just see their works being like tossed around like Tic Tacs, given they're getting paid for all of those transactions because of the amazing royalties that are embedded with smart contracts. But it's still really hurtful when it's being looked at as an asset instead of a fine art piece, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you would expect to have at least a horizon of five to 10 years 
in like the traditional arts, even 20 uh, before you even think about selling it. So mm-hmm. yeah, I really just want to slow it down a lot more. My goal is to really just, yeah, again, slow it down, long-term view, and just have really nice, beautiful things to appreciate and do it well. So yeah, you know, hopefully that'll be out by the end of the year. I just, I was meeting with my designers earlier today and it's looking really good. So yeah, we're on our way. That's awesome. Sophia, where would you recommend people go if they're interested in investing in their first, you know, NFT art piece is your, it sounds like you're building the luxury space. Is there, Mm -hmm. you know, like, is there something you recommend that people read or a group to follow, obviously following you on Instagram, like where, like if people are hungry to start learning about this space and, you know, figuring out how to set up a crypto wallet and investing in their first piece, where would you send them? Oh, that's a really good question. So funny enough, Twitter has made a full on comeback when it comes to the crypto space. We've actually seen a huge wave of artists who used to post their work on Instagram, just stop posting it mm. all together. And now they'll just mint it. And so it's like, if you like it, put your money where your mouth is. Don't give me a leg. Mm-hmm. Pay me, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, there, are, there are a lot of really great people on Twitter that are constantly talking about generative art. There are a lot of really great discussions. Honestly, just look at anyone I'm following on Twitter. Like it's usually a good, a good indication from there. But in terms of tools to actually get you started, there's a really great collective called My BFF. I am yes. also a part of that mm-hmm. uh, collective. But it was really, really been really helpful. I know for a lot of women out there to get started and have more women kind of just like explain to you like, what's up? And and they all do such a good job because I think it really is easy to get caught up in the jargon. And I'm the first to admit that yes, the barrier of entry is pretty high. And so I think some of my missions too is how can we lower that barrier of entry? And how can we make sure that you can talk to kind of anyone and say, you can collect this work, whether or not you're going to buy it on Ethereum, you know, or on the blockchain. I've experimented with that in the past where someone can pay me cash and I will transfer that artwork over to a hard wallet, save that for them, give it to them. You know, I think also from my experience, like at JP Morgan, thinking about different solutions on the financing side, what does it look like to pay for an NFT and installments? You know, what does it look like to have custody solutions if you're acquiring a work that's you know, worth hundreds, if not millions of dollars, you know, make sure that you're safe, or there's at least some insurance behind it. So there are a lot of different things there. But to come back to your question, also, if you're interested in learning about generative art, I cannot recommend enough the coding train on YouTube. So Dan Schiffman is a professor at NYU. He is the most incredible man. He is so goofy and hilarious. I love him. We love him. Everyone like he is. I think everyone in the generative arts has to thank him at some in some capacity because he puts all of his lectures online. He keeps them really short too. He'll do 10, 15 minute videos and really just does it in such an accessible way. Even doing one of watching one of his videos will help you tremendously in understanding mm, what great. it is that these artists are doing. And Jenny, let's just put that, my BFF, that video with Randy Zuckerberg and others, because that's really in the show notes. Yeah. In the show notes. Yeah. It's a great, a great place to start to learn. (laughs) Sophia, you said when you had your client that sold out thousand in 15 minutes and you said, who Mm -hmm. are these people? Who are these people Mm -hmm. buying things in 15 minutes? So a lot of them are, you know, they were crypto nerds for the most part, you know, like there were people who who were in this space. They've all, again, like you have to think of like the network effect that you find on social, social media. So if you're someone who's interested in crypto and have been building and you all tend to stick together. So those that were here early on, like Discord is another channel. That, mm-hmm. So 
I can't keep up with all the different communities out there. (laughs) I really can't. But Discord is one of them. And it's a place where everyone goes. So I realized that a lot of these guys who were really interested in generative art and blockchain and what the Larva Lab guys were doing with CryptoPunks and all this stuff, they all found themselves on Discord talking. And when Snowfro, the founder, uh, Eric Calderon is his real name, but when he first got started, his anonymous name was Snowfro. When he first got started, he was part of like the CryptoPunk gang and he started Artblocks. And so they all kind of got together. They knew what he was working on. And so it kind of became just like this crew of, of people. And unfortunately, it's still very male dominated. Personally, I haven't had any issues with that. Like I have like everyone's been very respectful of what I do in the space. I've never had anyone, at least yeah, knock on wood, be for lack of a better word, an asshole. So, you know, we're starting to see more women come up in as collectors. That's honestly that's my goal to bring in more female collectors because a lot of these works really are so stunning and to see them being like acquired by you know I I advise a lot of funds so a lot of male investors coming together pulling in their money and buying these works and while that's great and all for the artists I would still love to see them go home to like a caring collector and some of the best collectors I've met are all women and so this is something that is just like so inherent to how we move around the space and like you know we tend to uh, you know be more caring towards things so yeah, I would love to see more women, but right now it is very much like male-dominated, tech-focused CEOs of different companies or, you know, investors or just crypto-curious people. And there's this really funny saying that, you know, some of them guys are saying, came for the flip, stayed for the art. So they mm. all acknowledge <laughs> that they came in to buy work, to flip it and sell it, to make a profit. And then they were like, oh, wait, actually, these works are amazing. And so, you know, I think one of the main barriers in the crypto space is the the fact that financial jargon is intertwined with it. It's one of the things I'm so happy that I worked at JP Morgan for a little bit because I'm like, okay, I'm not that lost. Still, there are times where I've had to ask my friends, like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, he has the alpha or, oh, the floor price. And you're like, what, what does that mean? And alpha is pretty much just a fun term for inside information. And then the floor is really just the 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 lowest price that you can buy a project. So if there's a a thousand pieces in a project and the floor price is one ETH, that is the cheapest you'll be able to get an artwork for in that project. So people are constantly, you know, and then you see people who are really focused on the market side, be like, what's the floor? Why is the floor so low? And these are things that I see more from male collectors than someone like myself and some of the, some of my girlfriends who collect her are just like, this is really nice. And I just want to hold it. I don't care what everyone else is selling it for. I just like it. So yeah. I think that's what that my BFF video is so helpful for. Cause they do all that. It's like a big glossary, big fun glossary, mm-hmm. you know, with Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow and all the, all the actresses and all the people that they had. It's just, that's where I learned all that stuff. So, okay. That's... So when you watch it again, they asked me to, <laughs> so I cover the environmental impact. Oh yes. 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 And I was so nervous because it was actually so out of my depth. They were like, we want you to talk about, I thought they were going to ask okay. me to talk about, you know, artwork. And they were like, can you cover the environmental impact? And I was like, okay. <laughs> I, was so, I was so scared because it's such a, it's such a dicey subject, but it was mm-hmm. really helpful to actually have to dive into the research and kind of see the improvements that are being made across the board. Yeah. I didn't know any of that stuff. Like mm-hmm. you just hear all the bad side of it, not yeah, the improvement yeah. side. Of course, I, I, actually, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that actually. So, do you get pushback from potential buyers as to the environmental impact, or is that uh, not no, something that typically happens? Comes, 
it mostly comes from artists. So that's why I think when you look at Tezos, Tezos has done a really good job of being the green NFT. So Mm -hmm. it's a key difference between the mechanisms in which these blockchains work. And so Ethereum uses something called proof of work. Tezos uses proof of stake. Ethereum, ever since it got started. So I think it's also important to know that blockchain, Bitcoin was the first one to kick it off and started it with proof of work. So everything that came immediately after that also was built on top of proof of work. Mm-hmm. It became very clear that that was not sustainable and it was not going to work. So over the last eight, however years it's been, every single blockchain that's been created is not, it's proof of stake for the most part. And so very little, if none, none of the most popular ones now are proof of work because it's just, un- it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And so Ethereum, it, once it finally migrates to proof of stake, will drop its energy consumption by 99%. But this is something that I've actually had issues with when I do presentations at fine art schools or something along those lines where, you know, the artists will push back and, you know, we're burning this. And, and frankly, it's, false. And two, this idea that, oh, I'm just going to make a website then and that'll change it. Well, what you're going to put it on Amazon, like AWS server, like Amazon servers with Google, you know, with your Google domain. And you have to think about the, like, if you're going to keep that energy for, you know, for blockchain, keep the energy for every other thing that you're using on the computer and every other tool that you're Mm -hmm. using on the computer, because between Google and Amazon, they both use like as much, if not more energy than many countries in the world. So yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that we are well aware. I think one of the cool parts though, is that there are people who are really aware of the impact and doing what they can to offset or, you know, getting more trees, but there are a lot of different products out there that people support to help with that. And there's this idea of lazy minting too, where you won't, it actually won't get minted until someone acquires it. So, you know, there are different types of ways in which people are are looking at it so yeah definitely pushback for sure pushback the conversations online are can get rather nasty but i really enjoy reading all the criticisms on all sides i think it's important to be well-rounded and not just live in your little bubble but you know the science speaks for itself right now as it stands proof of work is definitely not sustainable so yeah but we're, we're moving towards it. I think that there are a lot of people who engage on the Ethereum blockchain that would definitely not engage with it if they had no, like, no need to, or, or there was no roadmap to, to switching over to proof of stake. What do you think are the next, what's the next thing to come down? Like, what are the trends? What's going to be disrupted next? Oh my God. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to see because I think that there are a lot of things that, you know, a lot of aspects of the world that would benefit from, you know, blockchain. So, you know, we see a lot of people in the like supply chain management is, is a really big, is a big one. You know, we've already seen art get taken over, but I think, you know, a lot of people say that it's going to take over the music industry. I've heard some really great counter arguments as to why it won't. So that I think is fascinating. So I think, you know, the music industry might be semi-safe, we'll see. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, it's going to, it's going to get everywhere. My, for me, I think we'll just get to a point where, it'll be part of your a business and we won't even realize it. Mm-hmm. I, I think when computers, when the internet came out, I'm sure all the nerds who were building on it, were talking about the server packets and like, you know, the, you know, the HTTPS and security protocols, right. like right. we use the internet and think nothing of it. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think we'll just get to that point right now. I mean, we've already stopped like speaking about the nonsense and like all these like random technical jargon from the early blockchain days that people were investigating. And now it's just like, NFTs, woohoo! like, you know, and, and that's great. <laughs> I think it's like over time, it, this idea of acquiring a digital asset will just sit 
well with a lot of people and it'll just be kind of like normal because we already do it at scale with video games. It's just not in a public way. So it's just in a gated garden, essentially. Okay. So before we dive into the joy and hustle, just one question related to your nonprofit work really, which is Uh around bringing this kind of work to young girls as a parent of a young girl. And I know we have a lot of parents who listen, a lot of mothers who listen to Mm -hmm. our show. What would you recommend for how to integrate this into education? Or if you have a child, like how early should they be starting this and learning about this stuff? And where would you direct them? I mean, look, so Kodart really started to just, the, the whole goal for that was to delight girls with just the idea of being able to be creative with programming and that it didn't have to be this like hacker man, like, you know, breaking mm-hmm. like, you know, cryptography and numbers and all these things. It's really just a way of a new mode of creation. And so I think once girls hit around like third grade, they're really great programs on Khan Academy, especially I know that they have, and I've I've used it for sure to teach some of the girls uh, Hour of Code, and they have creative coding, you know, type of lesson plans that you can utilize. So that's definitely a great place to start. And I think the coolest part about it is that, you know, they can do whatever they want with it. It's really just a, a cool way of engaging with the computer and really just pushing this idea of to be a creator and not a consumer of what the, the computer gives you. And so mm-hmm. I think okay. right now that is key. You know, it, it's really easy to be, to be distracted with all the things that are being pushed at you online. Mm-hmm. But I think if you can really kind of flip the script there and, and, and focus on building and, and understanding what's going on behind the scenes, it really just helps in, in so many different areas. Thank you for saying that. I love that statement, creator, not a consumer, because that's our entire mission with everything we're doing as well, which is that, if we're not making the stuff, if we're not making mm-hmm. the software, the tools or the art or whatever mm-hmm. it is, someone else is making the things that we use and we don't, we lose yeah. our say in what gets mm-hmm. made and, and really the institutions and structures of the world that we live in. So yeah. love that, love thinking about it like that and encouraging girls and, and young people to think about it that way too. Okay. Well, Sophia, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to share a joy and a hustle. So something that's bringing you joy in your life right now and a tool that helps you hustle in your business or your career, your craft. Okay. So my latest joy, honestly, hot yoga, it has just been the best thing ever, ever since I felt comfortable going back in just like a maybe like two weeks ago, but it has been like my obsession. I'm like, I need this. Like I break in the middle of the day, hot yoga, the best tool. Okay. So my hustle, I actually have two. So one it's called superhuman. It is an email client as someone who is just like, I am. Oh yeah. I've heard of that. Okay. Okay. I don't know what this is. Tell me. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds crazy because it had a bit of a sticker shock. It's $30 a month, but I was like, what is this thing that my friend was talking about? And I went to go check it out. They gave me a full demo and I was like, oh my God, this isn't overpriced. These people just know their worth. I was like, this is amazing. It's just like a really clean email client. I don't know. It it allows me to like clean out my inbox. I can hit inbox zero as someone which is like a chronically over just oversubscribed inbox. Like, you know, I constantly trying to figure out who's emailing me what, and like, it's getting mixed in with all these different promotions. This just cleans it out and you can divide up all of your different folders. And it's just a really beautiful UI. It allows you to have pre-made snippets. So I tend to send collectors really similar emails so I can have templates in there and, and everything. They're really big on shortcuts with your keyboard. So you're never really like clicking around. You can do everything. You can navigate the entire app using your keyboard and I love it. And I can 
it, it's just so great. It really is. Mm. Because if you look at Gmail, you have all these colors popping at you. You're like, what, what am I looking at? Like, this is just a clean, beautiful, nice interface. And I know that it's weird because it's an email client, but if you are someone who has to deal with email communications mm-hmm. all the time, I can't recommend it enough. Second one is monday.com. I love it for mm. all of my product management. It's really helped so, so, so much. And we implement, it was like my new year's resolution. I'm like, let's test this out. And it's been the best. It's really been the best. I use it to track everything. I have, I add artists to their board so they can see what orders are coming in, what's going on. It's just been a really wonderful tool all around. So yeah. That's great. We use that as well. And we also love it. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. It. Love it. Love it. Well, Sophia, thank you so much. We also are very passionate about getting crypto in front of women. And so that is why we're doing this series on crypto. So thank you for being a guest and thank you for spending the time with us. It's been just amazing. You're, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you. Hey, before you go, if you enjoy listening to our podcast and you know that your future involves teaching or coaching online, check out our Inner Circle experience. It's where we take these concepts, women in business, money, online business strategy, mindset, feminism, and help our clients take their expertise and transition it to an online offering. It's a one-year program with high-touch strategy and mindset coaching, online business courses, and the best community on the internet. To apply, head over to theinnercircle.works, fill out our short two-minute application, and if we believe you're a great fit, you'll receive access to a private advanced training on creating a profitable online business and all the program details. Go to theinnercircle.works to learn more.